Hello, I'm James Butler, and welcome to this week's edition of Novara FM, brought to you by Novara Media and broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM, London's most exciting and original station, and one of the few bastions of hope in our rather shaky times. This week has been one of high political drama, with Theresa May calling a surprise election and the British political scene more or less exploding. You can find coverage of the forthcoming election on novaramedia.com, including a conversation with Matt Zarb-Cousin, the former press officer for the Labour leader's office, as well as your typical range of articles and videos. You can also find the recording of our most recent live event, uh, which was held in Hackney last Friday, which is a panel discussion on universal basic income, in which the full array of argument and disagreement on the matter was, I think, visible. That is very worth watching, especially if you like a good fight. On this week's show, I'm speaking with Michael Roberts, a Marxist economist whose blog, The Next Recession, is, I think, required reading for those who want to keep up with a critical and insightful Marxist view of the relation between deep economic structure and political events. And it often offers a rejoinder to the kind of acreage of mainstream economic comment, which can seem to approach that strange French phrase for neoliberalism, la pensée unique, uh, the uh, unique or the singular thought. Uh, Roberts's book, The Long Depression, is a restatement of the centrality of uh, the rate of profit as an analytical category uh, with which uh, we are to understand capitalist crisis and the situation in which we find ourselves, which he argues is very far from a recovery at all, despite what you may have heard from political leaders or the more Pollyanna-ish of optimistic economists. So I began by asking him first what the difference is between crisis, recession, and a depression. So, you know, the book is, is, is a restatement of the kind of centrality of that Marxist category, the tendency of the rate of profit to fall, and its importance in reading and understanding the crisis of 2008 and its aftermath, and, uh, and, and, and also sort of an argument about, you know, its fundamental importance in any Marxist analysis of crisis and sort of capitalist dynamics. So I, th I think maybe the, the best place for us to start is, is, is just understanding the difference between crisis, recession and depression. Sure. Mm -hmm. Well, um, your listeners will know that there are regular crises in the world economy. Um, this has been the evidence is there. All the official agencies present evidence to show that you can have booms and slumps, capitalism and the world economies don't move on in a nice, harmonious, regular pace. They go up and then they have slumps. And those slumps can take place normally, uh, certainly in the post-war period, about every eight to ten years in the US and in other countries. And they're increasingly they're simultaneous, uh, whereas perhaps in the 19th century they weren't. But now that capitalism is the dominant mode of organising uh, the economies around the world, then they've become simultaneous. So every eight to ten years we get what economists officially call recessions, what we might call slumps, that's a drop in the output, big increase in unemployment, people's incomes go down, investment stops, people spend less. These crises or slumps take place on regular intervals about that period. Now, 
In the argument of my book, The Long Depression, I'm saying that there are sometimes periods when it's not just that normal recession, normal is a horrible word, to think that people are losing their jobs every eight to 10 years, but you can have an extended period of slump and when the recovery takes place, it's very weak and it never returns to the previous level before. And we can define that as a depression. And the book argues that there have really been three major depressions uh, since capitalism became the dominant mode of production, say, in the 19th century. The first one was in the late 19th century in the 1880s. Uh, in the UK, Britain was the biggest capitalist economy, but also in the US and parts of Europe at different points in a 20-year period between 1870 and 1890. And then the one that most people know, and the listeners will know, that what is called the Great Depression in the 1930s after the stock market crash in Wall Street, America in 1929. The US and then Europe went into a major slump uh, where production fell by 40%. Uh, the long lines of unemployed... Uh, throughout the 1930s, and things didn't really recover until the Second World War started uh, in 1940 onwards. Uh, now, in the book, I'm arguing that we're going through a similar period, that we had a huge crash and slump with financial crash, with the banks going down, and then the economies following it in 2008-9. Now, that didn't lead to a, a normal recovery. In fact, we had a long, slow and weak recovery where we haven't returned to trend growth like we did in the 1930s. So as well, if you think about, if the listeners think about a recession as being like a, a boom and a recession and recovery being like a V, you go down one side of the V and up the other side. Sometimes it's a W, as in the 1980s, you go down one, come up, go down again, come up again, then carry on. With a, with a depression, I characterise it in a book as like a square root. If those of you can remember simple arithmetic, a square root comes down, it comes up, but it never returns to the same level and falls short. And that is the period since about 2009, I'm arguing we've been in for the last eight or nine years. And that's the difference I'm going to argue in the book between a recession and a depression. So this is quite an important period to yeah, understand. Yeah. Um, but and there, are, there are, it seems to me to be you know two phases here. One is 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 that acute first moment of the crash. Because, you know, there are conventional economists who say, well, it was a brief period that's now over. And yeah, we might be in a period of sluggish growth, but it, it will recover. I mean, this is, you know, the OECD always says, you know, in three months time, <laughs> we're going to return to, to growth and sort of revise it forwards. But I suppose that at, at least allows us to ask the question, because, because I think I agree with, with the thesis, right? I think we are in a depression. I think that we haven't you know, move back to recovery. I think the fundamentals of the world economy have changed in some way, and that's partly to do maybe with some of the the, the me- you know the the methods used by central banks, QE, uh, zero interest rate policies, stuff like that. But it, it, it's also clear, isn't it, that there's a there's a difference between say the depression of the of the 30s, where you have these vast kind of catastrophic. Uh, responses to the so we have you know the, as you mentioned the kind of lines of unemployed that hasn't been the case here and it's been sort of cushioned by various things how has that worked well you're right it, no no thing is ever quite the same but let, the big difference first of all between the 1930s and now is that this depression is global where the 1930s was certainly extensive into the United States and Europe and to some extent other parts of the world like Latin America. But now it's covered, it covered the whole world 
in the period since 2009 at the end of the Great Recession. The Great Recession hit everybody. Everybody, nearly everybody had a recession. There were perhaps two countries that didn't. Australia apparently didn't have a recession and China didn't have a recession. So <coughs> there are two exceptions. But the rest of the world had a recession in the sense that output f actually fell, not just slowed down, but went right down and unemployment rose. And actually unemployment now, eight or nine years later, globally, as we can officially measure it, is around 200 million. It's probably way more than that, but 200 million. And it's not come down to the level it was before 2007. So it remains above that. And so we have a global depression, which is the first thing. Now, it's true in what uh, the book calls and what uh, we left Marxist economists call the advanced capitalist countries, uh, what the officials call the top 10 or the top seven uh, countries. There, unemployment, at least in the United States and Britain, didn't go down as, uh, didn't rise as much as it did in the 1930s, and it's come down fairly quickly. But the price of that has been that there has no, been no real productive growth. Productivity per worker in both these countries has dropped to zero. What has happened, we've seen a big influx of, from the reserve army of labour, the people who are unemployed, the reserve army is a phrase that Marx uses to describe the unemployed. This reserve army has been sucked up at very low levels of wages. Uh, at the moment, the, in Britain, for example, we have had the longest period in the history of capitalism, going back 167 years, of no growth in real incomes for the average household. I mean, it's a staggering figure. People may be at work, but they're not working enough to get decent uh, money. Lots of them are self-employed, as you probably know, people who had jobs lose them, and then they set up their own businesses in the hope that they're going to make a better living. Some do, but the vast majority of the self-employed are actually earning less than they did when they were in permanent employment. So we have low levels of wages and an influx of employment. So the price has been, uh, for working people in general, is they might have a job or a, a part-time job or a temporary job or a self-employed job, but they don't have the incomes they've had before. Capitalism benefits from that because it keeps their wage overall labour costs down in a different way from the 1930s. So in that sense, it has been a bit different. But in other countries, unemployment has been extremely high. We know, for example, a classic one in Europe is Greece, a staggering collapse in incomes, employment, pensions, and no sign whatsoever of any real recovery from that after eight to nine years. And I would say, James, it, people have to realise, and this is official figures from McKinsey, they're saying that if we look ahead, my children, or maybe my grandchildren, given my age, will actually be earning less than I will in, over their lifetime, given the way in which a huge loss and waste of employment and incomes has taken place over 10 years. It's a lost decade for a whole range of people across the world. And talking, you mentioned official statistics there. I mean, the the statistics produced even here by the ONS, and I mean, the ON, we can argue about statistical measures, you know, the, 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 the move from sort of uh, what index you use to measure price inflation, things like that. Um, but but they're cited by government, but rarely convincingly, right? And it's, it's you know, I, it, it often feels half-hearted it's very difficult to kind of really believe that they can point to these statistics and say look you know the the recovery is here we're we're, we're doing well um you know so so i guess the question for me is that so there are two 
there are two two possibilities here. One 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 it seems to me, and you mention it in the book, is a is a kind of slaughter of capital values, right? And it, at the end of the, the the Great Depression, that was you know undertaken by a catastrophic war, um, and so it. What would the solution look like here? Is is that is is some sort of really quite severe pain the only possible? Because we saw you know a sharp uh, you know some devaluation during during the sort of the the, the two thousand eight two thousand nine period, but but probably not as much as 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 we might have expected, might have uh, might have thought thought was likely. So 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 you know is that coming from the financial markets or is it going to to be some sort of you know, really disastrous, exogenous event. Mm. Well, first thing to say, this week the IMF and the World Bank meet um, in Washington. They meet every six months to discuss the state of the world economy and they, and they issue a report on how they see the global economy. Now, for the first time in six years, the IMF has announced that it's increased its projections for growth on the world economy. Uh, it's not very much, James, from 3.4% this year to 3.5%. But that's the first time they've increased it because for the last six years, they've had to keep reducing their projections for forecasts. And there's a lot of talk in the media that things are really picking up, that uh, profits are picking up, investments are picking up and so on. But if you see what they're analysing, they're analysing the opinions of people, the opinions of executives, the opinions of I don't know, households, whether they feel more confident about growth. And so they're measuring and forecasting things going ahead on the basis that people feel a bit more optimistic. President Trump's going to cut taxes for the big companies and they feel optimistic in the stock market. President Trump's going to build roads and houses and bridges across America and people feel maybe we'll get some work out of this and things are uh, going to be better. Uh, but it's all opinion. If we look at the actual data, there isn't really much improvement in the United States or much anywhere else, a bit better in Europe. Uh, in the book, I'm saying if you really want to know how capitalism is doing, we have to look at two things, profitability, in, well, maybe three, in profitability investment and the level of debt that capitalist companies have built up. And I argue in the book that uh, profitability was falling before the Great Recession happened. And if we look historically, since the, over the post-war period since 1945, the rate of profit in most countries has come down considerably over the last 50 years. And just before the Great Recession, it was up near post-war lows, nearly 60-year lows. And that creates the conditions where the capitalists always feel that anything will trigger them off to stop investing. And that's what happened. The big uh, credit fuel boom that should have taken place before 2007, the housing boom came crashing down, banks went bust, and the low profitability that the productive sectors of the economy had then imploded and we had a big collapse in investment. And despite that devaluation of all those things, what we mean by that under, in Marxist terms is that capitalists write off large sections of uh, ageing companies and uh, equipment and plant that's no use to them anymore because it's just inefficient. Uh, capitalists get taken over by other capitalists because the weaker ones aren't, can't survive. And workers are laid off in their millions to reduce costs. That is devaluing capital, Marx. They devalue the costs, creating a position 
for a higher rate of profit and then they can expand again. In a normal recession, that's what happens. But on this occasion, profitability hasn't really recovered sufficiently. And, and the other point is debt remains very high, particularly not just for government. We know that government debt is very high because we're told daily uh, in the official media that we need to get our debt, government debt down and Greece has got to sacrifice itself for the next 50 years in order to get its debt down. All that government debt was built up out of bailing out the banks. Uh, and so the banks have been survived as a result of government debt, but also the private sector, big corporates have big amounts of debt and their profitability is still not really recovered. Obviously, the likes of Apple and Google and Amazon and all those companies that we know about are probably very profitable. But there are whole swathes of other companies that only just make enough profit to pay their interest on their debt. We call them zombie companies. They, they can't expand, they can't invest, they can't increase productivity. All they can do is just to maintain their debt servicing. And in that situation, it's still not solved. So in my view, in the book, I'm arguing that we probably have to go through another horrible period of slump to devalue capital costs in order to revive uh, the world economy on a capitalist basis. It can be done. Mm -hmm. I mean, the book doesn't say that capitalism is going down forever. Yeah. It don't never, nothing ever goes down forever and they will revive, but it could take yet another big slump as we saw, we had two or three in the 1930s. And as you say, it required a, a world war in the end to get things going. Hopefully that isn't the option that's ahead for us that capitalism is going to make. I mean, so so you would you would differ from someone someone like say Sweezy who would who would say you know actually we you know there's not there isn't always a capitalist solution to these problems. It may actually it it may there there might not be a route out for for a, a sort of cunning capitalist. Well, I, maybe I'll balance between the two. I would say <laughs> that each time it's getting more difficult for capitalism as a mode of production to operate mm. efficiently and to take productive forces forward, that's a Marxist term, but that means meeting our needs by producing more. Uh, it's finding it more difficult because profitability historically remains very low and to therefore to revive profitability is becoming more and more difficult. But it can be done if you have a catastrophic slump or in the case of the 30s, a world war. I mean, these are, you can call these ways out for capitalism. They're not very pleasant for us, no, no. the rest of us, but that is a way out. But it is getting increasingly more difficult because Paul Sweezy, who was a Marxist economist in America, argued that things are becoming centralised, monopoly capital is taking over, uh, so the whole thing is becoming sluggish and sclerotic and not able to be dynamic and expanding as competitive capitalism was. I think that's a bit of a distortion in my view because I think capitalism has never been totally competitive, or for that matter, monopolies don't always survive. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's a balance between the two. Another Marxist economist, Anwar Shaikh, makes this point where he says that really capitalism is a sort of, uh, how can I put it, an aggressive, uh, uh, disabled uh, disequilibrium of cap competition and, and monopoly. It's balancing between the two. But it is getting more difficult for capitalism to revive every time. And as we go through this 21st century, it's going to be increasingly the case. And then the issue is posed whether the rest of us, human beings and our social organisations, prepare to put up with this system which is no longer delivering. Yeah, I mean, what do you make of the other uh, argument that comes from sort of 
It comes out of... Uh, so there are two arguments I want to ask mm. you about, actually. One is from uh, a, a field that may be more familiar to our listeners, which is the stuff that comes out of the, the sort of Keynesians and post-Keynesians. And they say, OK, well, look, this this is brutal, but we can find a, a slightly less brutal way through it, right? And we can find it... And they talk about government policy as if it's if it's, as if it's merely irrational, mm-hmm. right? That, that the imposition of austerity is irrational, that... Uh, that actually a kind of state-led investment program can lead to a revival of, uh, and you know whether that involves stimulus in some way or another. It's, anyway, uh, and there there are many mutations on this, and they usually say, "Oh, we're the heretical economists. Uh, we're the ones who don't get listened to." And you know, you have your neoclassicists and your sort of Hayekians and your various people in, in in various seats of power. And you know, if only the Keynesians were listened to, then we would we would you know we would be we would have a stable and sort of uh, you know you know a, a capitalism which is which occasionally requires fixes, but those fixes are within the technical skills of economists. What do you make of their arguments? Well, that, this is a, a powerful and probably dominant argument amongst us on the left, both in the organised left and perhaps in the ideas of people who, want, who see that things are rotten about the current system, huge inequalities, uh, these current regular recessions, um, people not really having the rights to control their lives. Uh, but is there a way that we can fix this? Um, Joseph Stiglitz, who used to be the chief economist at the World Bank and, and is a Nobel Prize winner in economics, recently wrote a book where he said that what we need to do is change the rules of the game. And the, the game's rules have been altered. In some way, they were probably right at some time. We used to have a perfectly good rule book for football, but somehow it's been changed and therefore it's biased against the rest of us, uh, particularly over the last 30 or 40 years. Um, as a Marxist economist, I find that a rather unconvincing argument. It seems to me that what we need to do is change the game rather than the rules. I don't think the rules have... Re- they're all changed occasionally to help the capitalist system work better uh, or to hit us a bit harder. But is there something wrong with the actual game? Does it, does it function and can it continue to function properly? Now, the Keynesian argument which was presented in the 1930s, obviously, by John Maynard Keynes, who was probably the most famous economist, even most people might remember his name. Uh, And what was his argument in the 30s? Well, I can put it, he said that uh, capitalism is clearly unable to provide jobs for all. It goes into a recession or a depression, because he was talking in the depression of the 30s, and it can't get out of it. We need to take action. Now, he said, we're, economists are a bit like dentists, he said. What we need to do is take the rotten tooth out uh, and manipulate our teeth better and uh, be healthier, and then the thing will go forward. I don't think he proved that that was the case. I don't think the depression ended as a result of anything of his policies. And what were his policies, we're, which are now advocated by lots of people now? Instead of cutting government spending Government spending must be increased. If we increase government spending, then people will have more income in their pockets, better more work, and they will spend and the whole process of the economy will pick up. But where is government spending coming from? It's coming from, well, we can borrow. Well, who are we, what are we doing? We're raising bonds or we're asking for loans from whom? From the banks. OK, well, the banks expect an interest rate return on that. And why would the banks lend to us? Where are they getting their money from? Well, they're creating money, uh, but... Somewhere there actually has to be things produced, whether it's services or things, which actually people buy and sell. And so they can actually make money in order to meet these borrowings. I could issue a bill to you tomorrow and say, here's a credit bill. Give me one million dollars, please. And here's a piece of paper for it. And you might say, OK, but 
How are you going to make a million dollars to pay me back in 10 years' time? And how are you going to meet this interest? Some, you must be doing something uh, to make money. The argument is that there's no limit on the possibilities for money creation for sort of central banks, right? It's not. It's, it's yes, not, that's what they're saying. Yeah. And they're saying that central banks can print money. Uh, they can create money. Banks can create money. And central banks can back them with that. And then this money can be spent. And that what will happen is that growth will take place. And then it will all get paid back over a period of time. Well, uh, the evidence shows that's not really the case. It hasn't been happening. It still has to be paid back, uh, or at least it has to be serviced. Uh, and that, that means that something has to be produced. And the result of uh, actually the evidence, which I, to some extent is shown in the book, but I'm actually doing some more work on this, is to show that the policy of government spending and fiscal deficits doesn't actually deliver growth, not in a capitalist economy. And I can explain why, because in a capitalist economy, Businesses, business investment, total investment is, say, in most economies, about 15 to 20% of annual output is reinvested in the economy. But that 15 to 20%, only 2 to 3% is government investment. All the rest is company investment, corporate investment. So and even if you spent money to boost that 2 or 3% of GDP, that's government investment, to say 4%, and that's quite a lot of money if you take the United States... 18 trillion dollar economy that means spending something like well close on one trillion dollars in government investment uh, president trump is planning to spend one trillion dollars over 10 years uh, so he's way short of that figure that would change and yet what you will do with that is that the business investment part of it will be hit because they can't get the profitability if money is all being taken off into the government, even as it's printed money to begin with. So actually, it's squeezing the profitability of business investment over time and not delivering the growth that's required. See, Keynes believed all we need to do, get a pump priming into the phrase, give it a bit of a nudge, and then capitalist investment will be fine. But actually, I'm arguing that give if you take too much from the, by the government, then business investment is damaged, and we're in a capitalist economy. If we were in a publicly owned, commonly owned democratic economy, then that's a different matter, but we're not. Um, I want to ask a, a, another question about those, about the, <coughs> the stuff that comes out of sort of, or, or is the, the sort of focus of attention for groups, uh, sort of left communist groups, groups like sort of end notes, people like that who write about the, 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 the there is a secular trend in capitalist companies no longer being, and it comes from concerns about the sort of organic composition, right? So it's, they're no longer, when they throw off labour, they no longer take as much back. So there is a growing surplus population, essentially. Yeah. Does this accurately describe the, you know, the relations between uh, sort of capitalist companies and, and, and the reserve army of labour? Is the reserve army of labour sort of uh, tendentially increasing over time? And does that mean that our political setup is going to, at some point, have a, have a real problem with, with, with a, a mass of people unable to find employment uh, and therefore in a capitalist economy unable to reproduce themselves? Yeah. Well, I think there's two issues there. There's the, the long-term trend. The long-term trend of capitalism is to try and reduce costs uh, so that it can make more profit. And the best way it's found to reduce costs, because it's competing against each other, not planning it in the interest of everybody, it's capitalist companies are competing against each other, is they find that if they can't get more work out of uh, their workforce, they can extend their hours of work, but there are limits on that. They can make them work harder, 
time and motion, all kinds of ways to try and get more profit out of the existing workforce. But the best way they find over, a period, over the long term is to replace workers with machines that can be... So one worker with a machine can produce three times as much as 10 workers were without the machine, and they can therefore reduce the workforce from 10 to 1. Now, that doesn't mean to say over a period of time that those other nine don't get other jobs if the, if the whole of the economy expands. They do. But what you do get is a relative increase in the amount spent on machinery, equipment, and robots now we're talking about, and other methods that replace uh, human labour. And so there's a shedding of labour. Labour may still increase absolutely. There's more people, more people at work, more expansion of the economy, but relatively to the expenditure on machinery, robots and other equipment, it's in decline. This is what Marx called a rising organic composition of capital. Horrible word simply means that the part going towards machinery and equipment expands relatively more than it does to labour. And in certain periods, in the cycle of boom and slump, Labour doesn't just expand less than all going into the machinery. It actually falls absolutely and also does the value of the actual equipment as well will go in a slump. But, and that actually creates the conditions to start again. But So over a period of time, there's a rising organic composition of capital. More money on, and investment in machinery than in labour. Labour is shed over a period of time. Now, I th and the book does deal with this in the in the end of the chaps of, of one of the last few chapters in the book to point out that we're moving into a new stage where we can actually through the use of robots, artificial intelligence, all this new development that capitalism is now looking to try and shed labour with, to the point where we could shed all labour. I mean, the latest figures arguing now that 47% of existing jobs in the American uh, economy could be removed by robots over the next. 10 or 20 years and we'll see but uh, that's um, one of the arguments and retail and all kinds of other areas and including economists I mean I can give you <laughs> an example uh, hedge funds now which uh, for, for your listeners are uh, groups of uh, rather smart guys who think they're smart anyway making huge amounts of money deciding how to invest lot piles of money they've got from the banks uh, on speculating in the stock market now, they have to make decisions about where to place that money. Well, now some hedge funds have meetings, board meetings, where there may be six people voting, five of them are humans, but one person is a robot. It's just an algorithm on a computer. They press the button, should we buy, should we sell the algorithm, votes along with other people. Maybe the whole yeah. of six on the hedge fund will be robots in 10 but years' that's time. That's interesting, isn't it? Because yeah. it's, it's, it's so, so the argument of these people is, is, that, is that tendentially over time, actually, because of the way that the capitalist economy is developing, as, it, as we throw off labour, actually, it, it, you know, the, the, these new lines of production just don't have the sort of labour-absorbent capacities of, of, of the old days. So there's a political problem there, I think. But it, it seems to me also true that, that automation... Automation's talked up, right? Like, it's, it's terrifying, it's coming, um, none of us going to have a job, and not in a good way. Um, <laughs> but, but it seems to me that automation only ever sucks up, or, or as it has sort of seemed to do thus far, it doesn't take all... Uh, all labour. It, it takes a certain proportion, uh, and so 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 I wonder, you know, I wonder what you make one of that, but also of the arguments that that are. So we so we did uh, a, an event 
just a, a few days ago where you know we had a panel discussion about universal basic income yeah. and it was a very it was a very divisive and uh, uh, idea and a, a very kind of divided and quite interestingly divided yeah. Panel, uh, but these ideas about kind of automation and universal basic income, and these are going to be our paths to, you know, a, a, a political future post work yeah. world. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Well, I mean, there are three things here, James. First, um, is automation going and robots going to lead to all jobs going? I don't think so. It's going to take an awful long time. William Nordhaus, an American economics professor, tried to measure how quickly this would happen. He reckoned it would take probably to the end of the 21st century, if not longer. Partly because there's all kinds of tasks and things that can't really be done at the moment, as far as we can see, by robots and AI. Although, if you have a techie here, he will tell you the opposite. Uh, if you go to the Science Museum in London at the moment, there's a robot exhibition on. Uh, my colleague at work went to the robot exhibition with his kids, and the kids said, these robots don't work. They don't do anything. And these are supposed to be latest robots. Uh, so, they are, I mean, obviously, they're not robots that make cars. They're things that look like human beings that are supposed to interact with you. And they're not very good at that at the moment. But no doubt that will progress. But it's going to take a lot longer than people think. The second point is a Marxist one. The, the argument of Marxists is that the things, uh, value and profit only really comes from us human beings working and that being creating things or services that are appropriated by private capitalists. They don't get any value out of a machine. A machine can sit there, but unless somebody turns the button and uses that machine, namely human beings at the moment, we don't have robots making robots, keeping robots going yet, uh, so that human beings have to be there. But if the value of, of created by human beings is falling because the labour force is relatively not increasing as much as machinery, which we just discussed earlier, then value is under pressure. The ability to create profit is under continual pressure. So there's a tendency for profitability to fall. And so before we ever get to robots taking over the world, we're going to have a series of much more serious profitability crises as this rising organic composition of capital increases to the point of causing more serious profitability crises. So before we get to the problem of whether uh, we'll all be replaced by robots, we're going to have more crises of, of capitalism in the traditional Marxist sense, which is going to decide the issue, in my view, well before we get to that other issue. But uh, on the last point you raised about universal basic income, I think it's a very important debate. Uh, I wrote on it on my blog about it. It's not in the book, but I said that... The argument of some people in the universal basic income is saying, look, robots are going to take over. We've got to help working people, quite understandable. And therefore, what we should do, we should take tax robots, raise income, and the government should then pay everybody a basic income, which keeps them alive, even if they're not doing anything. And perhaps we can move to a great workless world because robots will produce everything and we'll just have income to live off and we can do other things. It's a great utopia, and in many ways that's what we should be technically achieving, a position where human beings are not toiling all day long, reducing their hours of work, and able to do other things more creatively, perhaps like what we're doing now, uh, rather than just trying to make a living. Now, the problem with universal basic income is that people are trying to implement it in a way before capitalism has been removed, because in this situation, capitalists are actually proposing Universe, those who are proposing are saying a very low level of income, which is really no more than a welfare benefit, and 
getting rid of all the existing welfare benefits, including free education, free health service, all other things, in order to pay everybody a universal basic income. I feel that's a contradiction that's not necessarily in our favour. And the other one requires the end of capitalism. There are yeah. two <laughs> points here. So you, for me, the issue is, first of all, the end of capitalism, yeah. and then we'll decide whether people just pay people <laughs> or they do other things. Actually, in a socialist economy, it wouldn't be a question of paying money. It would be a question of creating what I call public, what economists call public goods or free goods. We have free goods at the moment. We, in some countries, we have free health service. We have free education to a certain level. We have certain three things provided by society and government. There's absolutely no reason why we can't have free transport, free whole ranges of basic foods in an in abundant society, all kinds of things. You wouldn't have to pay for your iPhone. It'd be a necessary requirement which would be paid for out of tax or yeah, out of work. Yeah. So, so uh, it's it, a political rather than a technological question. Yes, I think it's two things. One, the, the, the people are looking for a solution to pro robots and they're also pointing out that uh, in a better society we, we don't have to work all the time. And they've merged the two things together and confused them in my view. So uh, let's talk a, a bit about recoveries. Um, and recovery after the last war, you had the sort of uh, the golden age of, 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 of sort of social democratic capitalism. You had, they call them, what, the Trente Glorieuses in, in France. Um, and that, that was, a, that, you know, people at the time felt, you know, we have, we've cracked it, we've cracked it, and we've, we've found a way not to actually, you know, but, you know, as you, as you point out in the book, profit, pro profitability crisis inevitably followed. Um, recoveries like that are going to be hard to find now, aren't they? Um, so what kind of recovery, if we see a recovery at all, would we be looking at? Uh, is it going to be one that... Because so one of the things that someone like Emmanuel Wallerstein says, you know, the, guy, the world systems theory guy, he says, look, we're in uh, a moment of structural transition and it's towards a post-capitalist world in that capitalism is changing in such a way that it, it's no longer recognisably the same thing as it was, say, at the beginning of the 20th century, and that, it, that we're in a conflict between the spirit of Davos and the spirit of Porto Alegre. So either a kind of participatory, but, you know, like that kind of, you know, not maybe not attacking the very basics of capitalist production, but a kind of more inclusive, democratic, uh, uh, you know, means of moving forward, as compared to a sort of full-on, you know, uh, neoliberalism on stage steroids, you know, uh, massive accumulation and then a kind of sort of post-capitalist serfdom around here. What do you make of that argument? Well, uh, I don't see any evidence that we've moved towards a more, how can I put it, uh, participatory capitalism at the moment. Mm -hmm. Quite the contrary. Uh, it seems to me that we have, uh, because of the depth of this depression and the weakness of the recovery, increasingly people are not re getting back to where they were before, and capitalists are still not able to create the environment for sustained economic growth through higher levels of profitability to invest in. And uh, so they're continuing to try and hit us as hard as they can. I don't see much sign. Now, if, if uh, Wallenstein's saying, well, there are forces out there against capitalism trying to organise participatory democracy, uh, cooperatives, all that sort of thing, well, yes, um, there are. And I'm, I'm glad to say that there's a bit of an effort by class to organise as much as it can. But I have to say that's been there through the history of capitalism. And on the whole, while the levers of economic and political power don't remain in the hands of the majority then these, these sorts of movements 
will not last. They cannot achieve anything. Two things need to happen. It's up for listeners to think about. First, economically, we need control of the levers of economic power. The, uh, in British terms, we used to call it the commanding heights of the economy. The big monopolies, the big banks, the big organisers. There's only probably about uh, 130, according to the Swiss Institute, big companies in the world that have a network of controlling all the others. If these are publicly owned through world government, we're in position to direct all the resources of the world in the way we should. And therefore the question, then we can have local cooperatives and and we should have participatory democracy. The second thing is, of course, that requires political action. And we see we need political action on the international scale. If you remember, Marx tried to do it with his what he called the first international, the International Working Men's Association. We're lucky to be able to add a few more people to that now of a different gender. The second international, and there was a third one, and people claim there are fourth and fifth, so I haven't actually seen them. But uh, uh, an international movement which would change the whole basic uh, levers of economic and political power. Until we get that, then all the other ideas, it seems to me, uh, are a milieu that shall come and go as we see. The period of the Golden Age, which you talked about in the original part of the question, was an exceptional period. After the Second World War, when labour movements organised, capitalists had quite high profits, and so they were able to concede a lot, and they had to concede in Japan, in Europe, in America, lots of things which led to what we call the welfare state, or at least free education, in some places free health service, and organised trade unions and so on. That, of course, has been... It doesn't last unless the levers of power are altered. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's interesting to talk about internationalism there because one of the proposals made that is, it's quite, I, th- I think it's quite fashionable at the moment. I, don't, I mean, I, I find it hard to judge these things. Um, it, is the, stu- the stuff that's being talked about by people like Wolfgang Strake in, mm-hmm. in his stuff about how, how will capitalism end? And his, his argument. And there's a, there's a really great piece by um, Adam Tooze sort of taking on taking on the, the argument saying like, so he says, you know, in order to combat the, you know, the fact that capital is international and therefore, you know, ultimately any domestic regime of taxation will always be escapable. He says, look, what we have to do is, is nationalise. He says we, we need to return to the nation state. He probably doesn't put it quite this aggressively. But, but, but that's my sense of the contours of his argument, is that until we return to thinking about national regimes and national boundedness, then we're just not going to be able to combat capital until we're able to control capital and whether, it, you know, whether it's able to leave and escape you know, through the cracks. We're just not going to be able to do it. Two says this is a return to the kind of nationalism of the 1930s and it's extremely dangerous. But what do you make of those arguments? Well, I think... Um the way that you've posed it to me from Streak's argument, it does sound dangerous to me because there are two things. What do we, we have more in common with a worker and a household in France and Germany than we do with the owner of Amazon or uh, Vodafone. There is a class, there are classes in society, and yes, there are strata between them, but on the whole, it, the major, vast majority of 99% of us have no real common interest with the top 1%. And that basic thing applies internationally. But that doesn't mean to... Therefore, we need to build international solidarity between the class through so whatever organisation and issues that we can and to expose the position of the very tiny majority controlling the believers of power. So in that sense, we need an international perspective. But it's also true that an international perspective just doesn't happen sort of abstractly. You have to start somewhere, and most people start with their own country, trying to change the situation in their own country to make it better. So if 
we had in this general election coming up the Labour government, which will leave your listeners to think about that's possible. Uh, if the Labour government came into office and said it's going to take over all the banks and all the big industries and bring them into a democratic control and plan for investment to meet the people's needs, that will produce an almighty holocaust from the rest of the world, apart from possibly our, our own armed forces, but it would certainly do it internationally as well. And so the issue would then be posed to try and spread this idea to the rest of the world. I'll give you a more practical example. Greece had a vote in July 2015. The government, the Theresa government, said to the people, do you want to accept this vicious austerity from the Troika, the ECB, the European Union, the IMF, on, our, on your living standards, or do you want to oppose it? They had a vote, and they voted 60-40 against the teeth of everybody, the media and everything, against accepting the austerity. That meant if Syriza was going to carry through the wishes of its own people, it would have to reject the whole plan. It would face an economic and financial crisis. The banks would be under trouble. It would have to consider taking over all its banks, its big industries, appealing to the rest of Europe to, say, to come with Greece against the Troika. It didn't do that. It did the opposite. It accepted the policies of the Troika. Obviously, the alternative of a socialist struggle internationally was a, quite a powerful and frightening one, and the leaders of Syriza didn't feel confident that they could do that. If, or they, and so their gesture to the people backfired on them, actually, because they didn't expect to win that vote. They did, and then they just capitulated anyway. Yeah, I mean, it's an, it's an interesting one here because, I, you know, you, you think, you know... I, I don't I don't see what the you know I don't see either option as being easy no. in Greece. Um and the thing that's striking is actually how utterly insulated uh economic prerogatives are from democratic control across Europe. Mm. Which brings us on to the question of the EU. Mm. Um now I voted to remain despite the fact that I think the EU is a, a sort of, demo, you know, undemocratic, oligarchical monstrosity with a sort of horrifying Hayekian central bank that does dreadful things, you know, in the South of Europe. But <laughs> our other option is, a, as, as we are now seeing, is some sort of North Atlantic tax haven horror. Adam Tooze poses the two issues in yes, a way. Right, yeah, he says, yeah. Streak says, well, we need uh, Brexit or we need nationalism. Uh, Tooze said, no, we need internationalism. Yeah. And both... Uh, have, how can I put it, their positives and their minuses <laughs> in a way, because as you point out, the international institutions of the European Union are not democratic. Mm -hmm. The Rome Treaty was a treaty for capitalism and the market economy. On the other hand, it also was an attempt to bring nations together, mainly from the point of view of the elite, to compete with America and Asia, but from the point of view of ordinary people, also seen as a way of ending war. Yeah. And Europe and establishing some common basis of of our of working conditions and other social conditions, which to some extent the European Union legislation allows, and this will presumably under uh, Prime Minister Theresa May will all disappear here. In so, of course, it was always broken anyway by yeah. companies. Yeah. They didn't keep to it, and uh, it wasn't. Uh, when the TUC in Britain says that the 48-hour week is something we have, well, most people would be surprised to know that uh, they actually have legislation to stop them working more than 48 hours a week because many people work way more than that. Yeah. And there's nothing... <laughs> because they're exempted, yes. uh, like yeah. junior doctors or whoever it is, uh, and they haven't worked all sorts of shifts an hour. So it's, 
So these, these paper legislations don't necessarily work, but the idea that unity between a whole group of nations rather than having national fights and wars is a, was on the idea of people, but not a, a bad one, a good one. The Greek people, although they hated the Troika, didn't want to leave the European yes. Union. Yeah, I think Europe. that's significant. I don't yeah. think the left often grasps that actually... Uh, because we see, <laughs> you know, the 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 kind of uh, the economic interest uh, or, or of this kind of you know both the the central bank but also the kind of large European companies which see a kind of you know a, an economic regime in which there there are distributed rates at which they can that you know so that you have the kind of periphery countries in which you know, you provide relatively cheap labour power you know especially if you're you know a German company or if you're in fact if you're an English company and you want to import yeah. workers it was extremely good for you mm. so you know you see the injustice but you also you know the reason that people are fond of the European Union is that that that, that within its you know horrifying border it's free it, movement you know, of labour so it's so it's you know I, to me it's always seemed a, a you know a, a, that that difficulty is, is grasping you know the mixture there. I, so the thing that also strikes me is the people. You know that the, the, the defence of the EU is seen as you know, often quite a middle class thing. And I, I, you know, and you mentioned the kind of you know traditional class structure here. And I wonder about this. And I wonder about traditional class structure or kind of you know vulgar Marxist sort of readings of class structure because it seems to me that these sort of mediating classes, the middle classes, which you know to, to me you know <laughs> you know you only feel middle class when you don't really understand the the kind of vast gap in, in, yes, in wealth. Exactly. But but there is a, there is a development I think over the twentieth century of the availability of financial instruments like mortgages. Which allow you to, you know, obtain an asset, which means that you, you're no longer an industrial proletarian in a traditional sense, because you have an asset not from, not that you can live off, but which you know, but which has certain kind of financial capacity. So, what does this do to the possibility for political action in that traditional sense? Because it seems to me that there is there is a certain amount of political buy-in that comes from a heavily financialized. Uh, system which makes it very difficult for for the left to find that kind of traditional, you know, clear divide and clear foothold. Yes, I'm sure that's true. I mean, the, the, we know that um, when people do surveys, particularly taking surveys in America, the American working class is huge. You ask all Americans, very few of them consider themselves working class. The phrase in the media in America has gone. Now everybody's middle class. When Obama or anybody else talks about the working class people, he says middle classes. So I always ask myself, well, who's below the middle? What he means by that is what uh, people who are totally poor, uh, unemployed, disabled, all kinds of other conditions which make them impossible to use in the workforce, which is probably only 10% of the population, the vast, but apparently those are the underclass. And then there's this broad middle class, which is basically merged up right up to the CEO of Citibank, and there's nothing in between. This is a th uh, the, uh, the capitalist way of avoiding any class analysis. The class analysis remains. Most people have to work for a living, and very few don't. Some people earn a bit of money through their housing assets. Maybe they even have a rent house, a second home. There are more upper class, middle class people, but they couldn't live on it. Even those people cannot live on it. We're well, actually a professor of economics in the UK, Mark Zipper, did a, estimated exactly in the case of the US how many people in the whole adult population could actually not have to work for a living, and it's 2%. In fact, it's a little bit less than 2%.
So the argument of 1 and 99% is almost exactly accurate. That There's only a 1% that can don't have to work for a living. They can sit in Trump Tower or on the Mar-a-Lago and not have to work for a living. But 99% of us, even if we get income from rents and savings and we're a little bit more middle class we still have to work for a living and it does so we have more in common with people who don't have a house and a mortgage than we do with the very top people so that but it's true that the consciousness of people isn't necessarily matches the reality of that economics so there are political and social divisions and prejudices that develop. It's in the history of capitalism. Capitalism wants it. It wants to say immigrants are bad for you, but it wants them in, but it wants to tell its local workforce. It wants to keep that division there. So there's these continual plays. It's a, it, presumably, it's the job of uh, discussions like this and books like others to, sh- to, to tell people this is the reality of the situation. It's not this as, as it's painted by the dominant media and uh, ideology and society. So we have seven minutes or so left. Okay. Um, I've, I've got a couple of questions. And the first is we're going into an election period and we're going to hear a lot about the fundamentals of the British economy. Are they sound? Well, uh, I, I would say, James, I doubt if we are going to hear about the fundamentals of the British economy <laughs> because I think that the campaign, at least in Britain, is going to be about whether what terms we're going to have for Brexit. Brexit, Brexit, Brexit. It'll be two things on the issue from the point of view of the Prime Minister. I am the best person to get a negotiation on Brexit, which you all voted for, actually, 52-48. And secondly, the opposition is feeble and useless, and Jeremy Corbyn's rubbish. That's basically the campaign of the Conservatives. Uh, The campaign of the other parties remains to be seen, but hopefully we will have a campaign which will raise some of the fundamental issues of the British economy. And... Uh, it has been, at least in the Labour camp, to some extent raised. Mm. Uh, and the fundamentals of the British economy are very bad. First of all, the initial b- Brexit isn't going to be good for British capital. It's bad news. They're going to have to find trade agreements that they no longer have. We have no idea whether they will deliver the sort of exports and growth that they, they ex- the Brexiters expect. We have uh, a very low investment rate at the moment in British companies. The productivity is zero. We have incomes that are flat and with no foreseeable future rising for households to the end of this decade. To the end of May's next term, we will see no rise on average in household income in the UK. I mean, that will mean that from the period from about 2007 for 15 years, people have had flat incomes. Now, that doesn't tell me that we've got a fundamentally good economy. There's a, the British economy, the top one of the top 10, is, relative, in my view, relatively weaker than many of the others. And its big vantage has been, as, an, uh, as a big finance capital centre, taking everybody else's money and redistributing it and taking a fee. And if that's under threat, if you can't, can't get a good deal with the EU, it'll be under increasing threat. And it may be much more difficult. That's just the Brexit issue. But the general view, I mean, I would argue in the book that it's not just Britain, but all the major economies could face another big recession in the next year or two or three. Uh, Who can say exactly when? And that, can you imagine, we've just been through a major slump in 2008-9, a weak recovery, and then we have another slump. How are people going to react to that situation, Britain and elsewhere? And the French have an election. They have the same issue in front of them uh, uh, when they decide who their president and their parliament is in the next month or so. So the fundamental issues of all these economies are at uh, discussion and debate as we go into these elections. Yeah. So I know people don't like making predictions. 
So I won't ask you to make a prediction when and where the next crisis is coming from. But perhaps you could tell us where we should be looking, what the warning signs might be. Um, will it be the euro? Uh, that kind of thing. Well, actually, I do like making predictions <laughs> because um, I think it's the job of anybody who tries to analyse things scientifically mm -hmm. to try and work out the forces behind the causes and the mechanisms. And one of the, what scientists do when they try to have a theory and a hypothesis, they test it empirically, and then they make a prediction that something's yeah. going to happen. Will there be an eclipse of the sun on such and such a time? Newton worked it out, uh, and then you test it, and Einstein worked it out, and you can test it and see whether they were right. So well, economics may not be a, as an exact and a, a good science as natural sciences like physics, but I still, in my view, it is a social science and we have a scientific investigation. It's not just uh, something to throw up in the air. So I think it's, it will, it's, it's correct that economists should make predictions. Most of them are terrible. Uh, uh, at least mainstream economics is way worse than weather forecasters who aren't too bad now over three days. Uh, so um, my predictions have been, in, and I say in the book, that we will have another recession because we haven't resolved the question of profitability. I said that the, I tried to estimate the timing of that, that and generally the, the boom and the slump and the waves of profit and investment are over 30 years in the modern economies and the next bottom of this current recession should be around 2018 according to my calculations. I'm not the only one, Anwar yeah, Shaikh yeah, and other master's yeah. economists have a similar one uh, independently and on that basis if I'm, if I'm right then there's only about a year and a half to go before we have a major slump. Um, now, if I'm wrong, of course, I, you can bring me back here and <laughs> I will put the ashes on and we'll have to... But the point is... We'll have to figure out why. Exactly. We come back and we say, well, why is that? How come you've been totally wrong? What have you got wrong about the analysis of the world economy and capitalism that you need to correct or look at again to see why you're wrong? Because if we, if we have a boom, because that's what's being predicted now, a boom for the next five years capitalism and that happens then something's seriously wrong and this hour's discussion has been a waste of time for you, <laughs> readers, for listeners. okay so uh, we should we should prepare for the next crisis thank you very much for joining me um and the long depression is out from haymarket uh yes. now uh, it's in paperback it's very much worth reading it's an excellent primer uh, we will be back on resonance fm the same time same place michael roberts thank you very much thank you bye 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 this show is brought to you by Navarra Media. To find articles, videos, and more audio content like this, head to navarramedia.com. If you've really enjoyed this podcast and want others to hear it too, why not head on over to iTunes and subscribe? Leaving a review also really helps us out. Here at Navarra Media, we rely on our subscribers and supporters. If you have the means, please consider subscribing at support.navarramedia.com. In return, you'll receive priority access to events as well as promotions throughout the year. It's our way of saying thank you. For regular updates, follow us on Facebook, Twitter and YouTube. Navarra Media. Media for a different politics.